0: Welcome to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast, where we share examples of leadership and innovation. Small entrepreneurial businesses, large mega corporations, and all types of enterprises in between are seeing a global shift in perspectives around the role of business in society. From ESG investing to sustainable finance to social impact in our communities. We're on a journey to leverage data and intelligence to make the best business decisions possible. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast. This is Kisa Shreen, and today's guest is Cheryl (laughs) McKissick Daniel. (laughs) Cheryl is CEO of McKissick and McKissick, the nation's oldest minority-owned, Female run construction firm. Now, McKissick specializes in construction management, program management, consulting, and compliance services. And just to give you a flavor, some of the firm's projects include the LaGuardia Airport Building Redevelopment, Barclays Center, and JFK Airport Project. Just to name a few. Cheryl, welcome to the podcast.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Keisha. <laughs>
0: We're so happy to have you. And, you know, we want to talk definitely about governance and what your firm is seeing in that space, as well as a bit about sustainable construction. But w- before we get to that, I want to talk about your company's legacy, you know, just in talking about the theme of governance, how your company and your family has managed to build and govern a firm that can trace itself back to the 1790s. Wow. Let's talk about that legacy.
1: Okay. You are absolutely (laughs) right. It is... Almost 230 years, wow. which is quite incredible in this country, as you can imagine, as a black family. Yes. Um, the first descendant of our family came to this country in 1790 as a slave. And his slave master was William McKissick. That's why I have an Irish name, (laughs) Irish, maybe Scottish uh, name. And he was given the name Moses McKissick, the first and taught the trade of making bricks. So Moses uh, made bricks extremely well to the point that we believe that he was allowed to be set free by his slave master and pretty much make bricks for sale. Um, we know for a fact that he gave 365,000 bricks to the Cheers family in Spring Hill, Tennessee, because they built their mansion and it is still standing, currently owned by the Saturn Corporation. Now, Moses, um, his son was Moses McKissick II. Now the second was a master carpenter known for his, uh, spiral staircases and gingerbread finishes. I can just imagine, man, how was your week? I was perfecting gingerbread, <laughs> you know, finishes <laughs> on homes. I mean, incredible, but that's what he did. Um, now he had seven girls and then seven boys. He had to have those boys. Um, And so my grandfather was the first born son. And because they had a name, every time they had a girl, his name is Moses Edward John Henry Lewis McKissick III. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And his brother, Calvin. They incorporated our firm in 1905 in the state of Tennessee. Um, And that was before there were architectural licensing laws. They were considered master builders. They would design their buildings and at the same time construct them. But the laws came into effect in 1920. So in 1920, they were forced to get architectural license or lose their business. So if you can imagine two black men walking up to take their license in Nashville, Tennessee in the 20s, uh denied and denied and denied. Um, They lobbied the board. They were able to get one board member to say, okay, we cannot prevent these guys from taking this exam just because they're black. And so they were allowed to take the exam you would think that was over then, but it wasn't then they were denied their license. Eventually, though, they were awarded their license and became the first black licensed architects in the country with license 117 and 118 in the state of Tennessee. And both of those original licenses hang in my office. So I'm extremely proud of that. And because they were the first black licensed architects, they they gain a lot of notoriety across the country and so the board now takes credit for it and helps them get uh certified in 22 other states it's an amazing american story about how you know fortitude and perseverance can and prayer <laughs> can really come to light um these men work for papa doc they travel to africa they worked uh throughout the south and northeast if you can imagine having crews in um little rock arkansas or you know tuskegee alabama but living in nashville and having to travel during jim crow and you know segregation so it's a very interesting story the company was then passed down to my father who was the youngest of six boys um and he too uh was an architect and he expanded our business into healthcare, and he um, did a lot of higher ed. He worked probably at 19 historically black colleges and universities, including Meharry Medical School, where there are 10 buildings and he designed uh, nine of those. When he became ill, he had a massive stroke four days before my twin sister and I graduated from college. And my mother had to step in and run the business. She has a master's degree in psychiatry, which is great for the phobias she had to deal with with people who now had to deal with a woman at the helm. Mm. (laughs) Um, She expanded our business because she was is very much a salesperson and a leader. Um, But most of all, she was able to get myself and my three sisters back into the business. And now uh, my twin sister has a separate company out of Washington, D.C., Chicago, and L.A. And I continued on the family business. Of course, my mother made me buy it. (laughs) And we are in New York and here, uh, I mean, in New York and in Philadelphia,
0: Great. And I mean, that's such an incredible story. And we're talking about governance and how a firm can build succession plans and how a firm can really build out its own infrastructure. And I'd love to hear your story about, you know, taking the firm from generation to generation. And in the context of succession, where do you all go from here? What kind of plans are you making?
1: Yes. Um, You know, early on, I'm sure they were not thinking, you know, succession to you know, on, at the degree that we think it today. Um, you know, I think then it was a struggle that brought a family close together. And so they worked through that struggle together. If you think about bigotry from slavery and, you know, Jim Crow and segregation, you know, how our family sustained all of, you know, those, you know, crazy days. I think that was very much part of what our ability, you know, to sustain ourselves over the years. Now it's a different day. Um, and so sustainability for us in the future could go a lot of different ways. Um, for me and, and the way I look at it, there there are a couple of factors that I look at. Number one, You know, when do I want to hang up my running shoes and what is that going to look like for me to sustain the rest of my life, number one? Or hang
0: up your heels. I've seen your heels. Hang up
1: my heels. (laughs) heels. That's better. (laughs) Hang up my heels and hard hat. What what's that gonna look like? I mean, you have to plan because ultimately it's coming whether you want it or not. And you know, to have a family business that's fifth generation, you know, I really would like to see it continue. However, it doesn't have to continue with family. Um, my kids, I don't know where they're going. They're 24, 25, Um, And I have seen, especially when I have studied this area, the the desire for the next generation to take over to the point that the company goes under, because that generation is not ready. They're not the best leaders. They weren't indoctrinated the right way. They don't have the support of staff. A whole lot of reasons why the next generation may not make it. So I resolved to myself early early on, it may not be my kids. It may be my grandkids. It may be a niece or nephew, but it may not be that either. So what do I need to do in case it's not that? So then that takes you to, I think, the very next important factor, and that is preparing staff for the future. You have to have a tremendous leadership team. Um, and, and it's something that is strategic. It's not something that just evolves. It has to be strategic because I have seen also where um, family businesses have gone out and hired a president or they've promoted the wrong person. And usually that's a result of culture. That person does not understand the culture of the company, the vision of the company. And, and if they do, they don't. They haven't bought into it. Um, and so at McKissick, I am very conscious and, and with a watchful eye of who in our company understands what we represent. And I mean to the core. Um, and are they a leader for us in the future? Unfortunately, um we have a a good group. Um we are um I have a board and we are in the process of training a young man right now um to you know progress as a leader uh, for McKissick. Um uh, we have him and we have a, a couple of others who could fit that bill. Um and so that is very exciting to me, especially that he happens to be black. <laughs> Um, and, but it takes buy-in from staff, number one, buy-in from clients, buy-in from all of your partners, your banks, your accountants, everyone who has helped you get where you are. They have to understand this vision. Um, and so the transition takes a while. So that's just leadership transition. Now, what do you do with ownership? That's a whole nother story. Okay, so now that's when the family comes into play. What percentage do they get? What percentage does the staff get um, for them to perform and feel like they're a part of something? And that's our model. You are a part of something bigger than yourself. And so we give everyone the freedom to be creative and innovative in our company, but within our framework, which is a loose framework. You know, we don't tell everybody you do step one, two, three, four. No, here is the idea around what you're supposed to be doing. Now it's up to you to figure out how to get there. And I really like this culture in our in our company because it brings out of people their creativity and their innovation Also, it allows them to grow as a manager, to make decisions, to make mistakes and to understand why, you know, something worked well, why something didn't work so well. And as a result, we're creating our leaders for the future. Um, So we're looking at leadership on management, organizational structure side and then ownership. How does that work? Um, We don't have it all figured out. But of course I'm not hanging up my heels anytime not soon. Just not, <laughs> not just
0: yet. Not just yet. That. That's great. See, you raise a couple of various um a couple of issues. So one is the succession planning and looking, having a watchful eye for who can step into roles, as well as engaging the board. And then you talk about culture and mission. What sort of resources, if I'm thinking about this in a step-by-step process, I have a business, I'm designing a governance plan for the first time, I need to think through succession, I need to think through my company's culture and the mission, I need to think through how I'm engaging the board. What sort of resources do I need? Is this um, an issue of, you talked about money, so how can we um, reward our people and really get them to buy into what we're doing here? Do I need external consultation? What resources do I need to take those steps to really build a good governance plan?
1: Um, You know, what's so interesting is as a business owner, you are so busy working in the business that you forget about working on the business. So as I've decided to expand my national brand And, you know, there's a reason behind that, too. Um, I've been drawn into a lot of panel discussions. And this year, one actually was on succession planning. And so I began to examine where I was with my business. But at the same time, of course, the Internet is the first place you go. And that's where I found this great um, article. Actually, it was a guide, a hundred-page guide uh, from Deloitte. Um, but from there, I have now engaged consultants. I, you know, am doing an RFP right now um, because now I have a framework of what I want to do. I know that before I meet with them, that I need to understand what I want. I need to understand, you know, the leadership role. I need to have the basis for them to start work. Um, And so, yes, it's going to require some money (laughs) because, you know, you get what you pay for. And I'm fine with that because you cannot um, put your head in the sand and act like this is not going to happen because there is a succession coming whether you plan for it or not. And, you you know, that's the bottom line.
0: Great. You have to be ready. You so have to be ready. Yeah.
1: If, you know, a lot of people aren't. Mm-hmm. So there goes the business. Exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm.
0: So moving from the governance piece to more of a sustainable design, sustainable construction conversation, just what you're seeing there. Um, we know that sustainability in construction has been a part of the overall sustainability conversation for years. In fact, according to the Environmental Protection Agency, Across the U.S., commercial buildings account for 38 percent of carbon dioxide emissions and 39 percent of total energy, mostly because of the energy required to heat and cool and power building. What shifts are you seeing in terms of sustainable building, sustainable construction, LEED and green building? Are you seeing some things now happening that you didn't see in a few years ago? And what do you expect to see coming down the road there?
1: Um, Absolutely. Uh, You know, I've been at this for 30 years. 30 years ago, there were no MWBE programs. <laughs> there was no LEED.
0: Minority Business Women Enterprise. Exactly.
1: Okay. There was no designation for the state of New York. Um, and so I remember when LEED first came out and, you know, everybody saying, green, what is that? You know, and then you have the different uh levels, you know, the, the silver, the gold, the blue. The, uh, bronze. Um, And so, you know, what I've seen now is that is a way of life for designers and in, and in construction. And it's been driven, I think by the consumers because the owners are saying, you know, we want to make a difference um, on the uh, green footprint of the United States the developers, so the uh, individuals who are renting uh, uh, apartments, buying condos, they gravitate to buildings that are designed green, and the highest level is what they want, and so this has been driven by consumers, and and now it's it's sort of a way of life. There was a period of time where you know safety, which is huge in New York because of the size buildings that, you know, we construct wasn't the conversation as soon as you, you know, work, walk on a construction site. Now there's OSHA. Every meeting starts with safety first. Um, And so now it's a way of life. And so, you know, sustainability for our industry, I believe is, is excellent. I mean, and, It's just going to get better. We're getting more efficient with the use of technology, so there is a whole lot more less waste. Um, You know, there's clash detection techniques that take place uh, with BIM. So before structures go up, we're able to model them on computers. And um, looking at those computers, we can determine how much actual material we really need instead of going out to the site, constructing and realizing there's a tremendous amount of waste and what do you do with the waste? Um, A lot of it we can reuse now Um, and the green has now uh, moved over to the construction industry, how we dispose of materials. Um, So it's huge being part of the Barclay Arena. Um, as you can see now, we have that beautiful green roof, um, which is, you know, spectacular, which has increased, you know, the green footprint. So I, I am very excited and hopeful um, and um, inspired by, you know, the advances we're making in our industry to help this cause.
0: Right. you talked a bit about the minority women business enterprise, those initiatives that you see that you've seen happen over the last several years. I know that you consult your clients in the area of compliance regulation as well as DNI. So what sorts of concerns do you see clients and just the overall population in the marketplace as having and what are your what's generally your advice? How do you consult them in terms of that sort of area as it relates to DNI, diversity and inclusion?
1: um you know it is very interesting i was in a panel yesterday and people are accepting the fact that diversity makes money so we are <laughs> our our country is built on entrepreneurship capitalism and the minute that you know capitalists understand that they are going to uh increase their profits by diversity They jump on it. And the reason this is happening is because now you're getting more creative ideas from people that have a different perspective, whether they're women. We're seeing women in the construction industry tearing it up because they are so attentive to detail and they are finding faster, better ways to um, progress things in the construction industry. Do
0: you see a lot of women in the construction industry?
1: It's getting, it's getting a lot better. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, do we need more? Yes. And we need more of the uh, minority within the minority. Uh, black women are businesses are 2% in the construction industry uh, in the city of New York, city and state of New York. And so that is why I'm expanding my personal brand. I am going out to trying to reach and connect with the young women, especially black and Hispanic women, to let them know that they can build wealth in the design and construction industry and that the industry is huge. There are a ton of different areas that they can go in. And not only that, we're not boring. We can be glamorous. We can wear our heels and hard hats. To- to work. And and we can have fun. We can have a brand. We can be just like any other celebrity. Um, And so I am very excited about that mission. Um, We need more uh, Blacks and Hispanics in our business, especially the women. And so when I speak, I focus on that. And so advising my clients, you know, it's wonderful that we have grown um, uh, several minority and women-owned business firms. So now we need to concentrate on the minority within the minority, and not continue to just go back to the same firms we've been using over and over again. At a period of time, firms, you know, have to progress to you know a prime role where you know they're competing um, dead on with majority firms. And we need to bring up the next level of firms to make sure that we expand, you know, the pool. And that creates competition. But the best thing is it makes money.
0: Great. So Cheryl, tell us, what is the big idea? So what do you see happening in the construction space, in the sustainable construction space, or even in the governance space that you think will take us by surprise that you see coming down the pipeline that maybe the rest of the marketplace doesn't see? What's the big idea for the future?
1: Um, I think the big idea is, is going to be around technology. Um, construction is a big data issue. Um, and so for years, however, (laughs) the IT platform for the various disciplines who have to make a construction project work. So that's the architect, the engineer, the, the construction staff. Um, all of our IT platforms have, are not connected. And so as they get connected, um, it will streamline These mega projects, if you think about it in New York, 15 years ago, a hundred million dollar project or 10 years ago, a hundred million dollar project was a big project. Today, it's not. Today, if it's not a billion dollars, it's not considered large. And so the mega projects are just, you know, increasing. We have LaGuardia. That's, you know, four point five billion. LaGuardia Central Terminal. The Delta Terminal is almost five billion right there at LaGuardia. JFK with all its uh reconstruction is thirteen billion. We have the Port Authority bus bus yeah, bus terminal. What's that? Four four billion? And then we have the tunnel that should be built already. It was gonna be ten billion, that's now gonna be twenty five billion. So in the MTA capital program, you know, it's we're finishing up a thirty two billion dollar capital program that McKissick actually oversees. And, you know, the next one could be 50 billion. Um, so these projects are bigger and we need better technology. When you go out to the field, you need to have a handheld. I mean, we have that, but it's not starting at design and then finishing out in the field. So it needs to be one platform that can, you know, be a can handle the big data that we need to extract information that we need. And I think that's what's coming.
0: Great. Technology changing the game and construction changing the game in sustainable design. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, Cheryl McKissick. Daniel, it's so great to see you. Thank you for coming. Thank you. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Refinitive wants to hear your comments on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for joining. See you next time.